Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. The focus of season six is leadership. And today we're meeting up with best-selling author, Daniel Pink. You might know his books like Drive, To Sell as Human, When, and A Whole New Mind. His latest book, which debuted at number three on the New York Times bestseller list, is called The Power of Regret. In our discussion, we talk about how people can overcome their own regrets to unlock improved performance, how leaders can use regret as a motivator and teaching tool, and we even talk about the merits of asking about regrets in a job interview. Dan, welcome back to 12 Geniuses. Don, I'm so glad to be back with you. You are the author of many books, but a new book called The Power of Regret. And I'm just curious because you've been on the show before. It's been about two and a half years since we last talked. And I know that when you are writing a book, this is no small feat. You spend a lot of time researching it and writing it. It becomes your baby. Why did you choose the topic of regret? Yeah, it's interesting, Don. When you and I talked, and your your listeners won't know this, you and I are talking right now via video conferencing. But the last time we talked, we, we were actually in my office, which is the garage behind my house. I'm telling you know this. I'm telling you to the listeners, the garage behind my house in Washington D.C. That was March of 2019, and at the time, I was actually working on an entirely different book. And what happened is that a couple of months after that, our eldest daughter graduated from college and I'm at her college graduation and I'm having a kind of out of body experience in two dimensions. One, I can't believe this kid is 22. She was just born. It's like, whoa, what the heck's going on? You know, like any parent has that. And then being sort of more narcissistic, I guess, or, or more, more sort of self-focused, I said, wait, wait a second. How is it even possible for me to have a 22 year old kid graduating from college because I'm like 28. I just graduated from college a few years ago myself. And I'm so, and this is long graduation. I'm thinking these like weird thoughts. And I started thinking about, wait a second, I just graduated from college. And I started thinking about my college, grad, like what I did in college. And I'm like, oh man, I wish I had worked harder. I wish I had been kinder to people. I, I wish I had taken like more risks. And I just came back. It just it was a top of mind. And I started talking to people about it. And I found that people were leaning into this conversation in a way that just shocked me. I mean, truly, like instead of recoiling, they wanted to talk about it. And, and as a writer, that's always a really interesting sign. And so I started looking at, said, well, let's let's just see here, because I was sort of doing a half-assed job on this other book. And I started looking at the research. I said, wow, this is really interesting. I think that in many ways, we've gotten this whole emotion entirely wrong. And I started thinking it through. And then I finally... About a month later, I emailed my editor and said, hey, Jake, I got some good news and some bad news. Bad news is that I think I'm going to start stop working on this book that you think I'm working on. The good news is that I think I got something way, way better. And so that was the genesis of it. So you were just literally weeks before everything exploded. What I found very fascinating about the book is that you actually spearheaded two studies. Yeah. And I'd like to talk about those two studies. There's the American Regret Project and the World Regret Survey. Could you talk a little bit about what those are and what you learned from? Yeah, thanks. And I appreciate I really appreciate that question, Don, because this was I decided to do things a little bit differently here. So so one of the amazing things about the time that we live in is that it's possible to do pretty sophisticated survey research even if you're just an individual, single individual, because of the the tools that are available, and so uh, so working with a data analytics company, I put together a 
survey, basically a public opinion survey to try to gauge American attitudes about regret. And it is, to my knowledge, the largest sample of American opinion about attitudes about regret ever conducted. And there have been, there have been several in the, in the past. And so I wanted to get a sense of like, of what did people regret and how did they think about regret? And one of the, I guess one of the main takeaways from that research, which was, ended up being a very, very large sample of 4,489 people, and it was representative. So we were, we were able to look at different demographic groups. The biggest thing was this. We asked people, we have this notion that, oh, we shouldn't have any regrets. No regrets. No, I don't have any regrets. I never look backward. And so I asked people a question where I didn't use the word regret. I said, how often in your life, how, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done something differently? And what we found is that the, the number of people who said never was 1%, 1%. And then basically 83% of people said they did it at least occasionally. And we had about 42 who said they did it a lot. And so the, the point is, is what I wanted to verify was what came up on some of the academic researchers is that regret is incredibly common. Everybody has regrets. Uh, they, they're part of our humanity. That is, as some social scientists and, and even neuroscientists put it, like our cognitive machinery is pre-programmed for regret. And so that survey was designed to sort of verify some of that and also just to try to get a sense of what, uh, what people regret and whether there are many differences between demographic groups on regret. Yeah. So, so that's the American Regret Project. Yeah. And that was quantitative data, correct? Exactly. Or was there qualitative exactly. as well? No, that was, that was quite, well, 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 I mean, I asked people for their regrets there because I wanted them to think about their regrets and then I had them place it in categories, but that was, that was a, that was a, a quantitative, that was a, a very, very good quantitative survey. Now the, the survey was, was very good. What we ended up, and I was most interested in seeing if people's attitudes toward regret were different based on race or income or education. And there were not actually massive differences based on, on those kinds of uh, attributes. Now, I also did a qualitative piece of research that made me understand the limits of my own quantitative research and actually some of its predecessor quantitative research. And that was something, as you say, called the World Regret Survey. And all I did there was collect regrets from and ended up collecting a lot of them. It, pretty amazing how much people were willing to share. It's kind of amazing. Uh, ended up with, I mean, we're, we're over 17,000 now, but I ended up to write the book. I think I, we had something like 15,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. We also put the survey out in Chinese. We also put it out in Spanish. So 16,000 you know, 16, regrets from 105 countries. And what I discovered there when I actually just began the laborious task of reading through them over you know, one after another after another was that there was something bigger going on that I had no idea of in the quantitative survey. And that was this, that when we ask people, when we're trying to figure out what people regret, we end up going too much to the domains of their life. This is a work regret. This is a career regret. This is a health regret, education regret, romance regret. And what I found is that when I looked at these, this giant trove of regrets, this almost ridiculous compilation of human longing and aspiration, that there were underneath, there was something bigger going on and that around the world over and over again, people had the same four regrets, irrespective of domain the domain of their life, that there's something bigger going on. And, and, and I found that that was like a, that was like a big, big breakthrough for me that it took, it took actually reading through the regrets and actually 
sort of widening my vision a little bit and saying, wait a second, I can ask people to categorize them as work regrets or personal regrets or anything like that. But those categories are confining because there's something bigger going on. So let's talk about those four core regrets. What are they? Number one, foundation regrets. So foundation regrets are people who make decisions in their life. Basically, all these regrets begin at a juncture. You're at a juncture. You can go this way or that way. So in this case, you can go, you can, you can, you can do the work, you can put in the time, you can take care of yourself, you can act responsibly, or you can abandon those kinds of things. And when people abandon those kinds of things, invariably they regret it. Not right away, but the effects build. So these are things like around the world, people regret smoking. People regret not exercising, not taking care of their health. A lot of regrets, a huge number of regrets about spending too much and saving too little all over the place. So all these things, these are foundation regrets because they begin eroding kind of the stability of your life. And so the the catchphrase of regret is if only. And so foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. And that ends up being a pretty big category. Second category are, this is really interesting, I think. I think it's super interesting, are, are boldness regrets. And this is where this is where I started getting having an instinct that there was something bigger going on here. So I have, and I think that your, you know, your your business audience will appreciate this. I have huge numbers of people all over the world who regret not starting a business, who regret not being entrepreneurial, who regret sort of sticking with a lackluster situation and not going out and taking the taking a risk in professionally because they were they were scared about that huge numbers of people all over the world but i also have people all over the world who regret foregoing chances to travel i mean you could start i say this in the book as you know don but you could because you you thankfully read it but the you could start a you could start a travel agency with college graduates of all ages who regretted not studying abroad I can't even believe how much that was a regret of people. So, so you think about that. So the one of them is like a career regret. The other one is like, I don't know, call it an education regret. And then you have, again, legions of people all over the world have a regret that basically it's like there was someone who they were really interested in romantically. They wanted to ask that person out. They didn't because they were too chicken and they regret it. So that's like a romance regret. But so all these things are in different domains. But to my, that's the same regret. It's basically you're at a juncture. You can play it safe or take the chance. You play it safe, you regret it. You take the chance, sometimes you regret it, but much, 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 much less than we think. So that's a boldness regret. Uh, and that to me is like, okay, wait a second. Foundation regrets, it's not about health or finance or anything like that. It's about stability. It's about the platform of your life. The boldness stuff is about our desire to take a chance. I'll give you the, the two other categories. The third one is, is moral regrets. Again, the juncture. You can do the right thing or you can do the wrong thing. We do the wrong thing. Many of us, not all of us, but a heck of a lot of us regret it. And so I, I'm doing interviews on I'm doing interviews on Zoom with 50-year-old people who are in tears because they feel so bad and regretful about bullying somebody in school. I'm having the, I mean, I can't even believe some of the, I mean, it's fascinating. These conversations I'm having with multiple conversations with people who regret cheating on their spouse. And are telling me about that and what the, you know what they're what they're how they're reckoning with that. So more regrets are if only I'd done the right thing. And finally, our connection regrets, and those are regrets about relationships, but relationships of all kinds. And what typically happens there is you have a relationship that should be intact or whole, or was intact or whole, and it becomes and it just starts drifting apart a little bit. And and to me, the, one of the insights for me, and, and again, hearing all these stories, was that the way a lot of these relationships come apart is just profoundly undramatic. 
Like there's there there aren't many instances of like people throwing dishes at each other and cursing each other and like slamming doors and doing all those kinds of things. It's just there's kind of a drift. And what happens is is that people want to reach out, but they say, ah, it's going to be awkward to reach out, and the other side's not going to care. And of course, they're wrong. And so connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And just one more beat on this is that these four regrets, what I realized, this took me a while to get there, that these four regrets are a photographic negative of the good life. That if we understand what people regret the most, we understand what they value the most. So in this weird way, and I didn't, ex I ended up in a place I didn't expect that this negative emotion of regret tells us like what people want most out of life. You're talking about a, a photographic negative of what they value, right? Mm -hmm. So understanding their, their, regret helps you understand what they value. Is it what they value currently or is it what they have always valued? Because I, I can think of almost every one of these core regrets and put myself in a category and say, yep, here's an instance where I have a foundation regret. Here's an instance where I have a boldness regret. Here's an instance where I have a moral regret. Here's an instance where I have a connection regret. Now that's 53 year old Don. That's not, you know, the person who made the mistake or who, who created the regret. So what it's a great, a it's a great question. It's a fascinating question. And I have to say, my answer is I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's what I would expect. That's what I would expect. Yeah. I feel fairly certain that these are things that we value throughout our lives, but we might value them in different degrees at different points in our life. And one of the one of the relatively few demographic differences that came out in the quantitative side of the research was on age. And, and so it sort of goes to your 53 year old Don's question, which is that around age 20. People had sort of equal numbers of regrets of inaction and regrets of action. But as people so regrets of inaction, regret is I didn't do this. Action regret is I did this. But as people age, inaction regrets completely take over. I think that there are some differences there. But my instinct is that these are things that we always value. We just don't know how much we value it. And, and maybe knowing how much we value these things early in life can actually steer people to make better prospective decisions about the rest of their life. One of the things that surprised me about the research is just how honest and candid people were. I couldn't believe some of the things that I was reading and that you probably only listed 50 instances in the book of, of some of these. I, I, I was just blown away by this. I am so with you on that. I'll, I'll tell you a little back. I mean, I'll tell you a little backstory of, 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 of this is that, okay. So, so two things. Number one is that in the world regret survey, I wanted people to do it. I wanted it to be anonymous. But what I also said is I said at the end of it, if you're interested in being interviewed, please include your email address. And OK, and I expected I'd get maybe five or six percent of people opting in to be interviewed. Uh, I got something like 32 percent of people opted in. So, I mean, it's crazy. Then the other thing that happened is, is that, um, again, I, I, I want to be respectful because people are telling me these very vulnerable stories. And so there were certain circumstances where I said, where people were telling me things and I'm like, okay, so three people requested it. That, that was it. Wanted a slight, say, don't use my real name or one person was don't use my real name. So we can't have a pseudonym, but that's the only one in the entire book. Somebody else said, um, and somebody else didn't let me use his last name. 
That'd be Bruce. Yes. But everybody else was willing to go on the record. And I was like, there was, there, there, especially like some of the people with, with marital infidelity, I interview them and I like, you know, you can, we can just use your first name. We can use your, we can say, you know, a different name, whatever. We just have to disclose that to readers and no, oh, no, that's okay. You can use my name. And, and I'm like, okay. Right. And then I write it up and I come, Hey, I just, I'm going to put you in the book and, you know, just want to make sure like, you know, I'm using your name right now, but we can always use a pseudonym or no, 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 that's cool. And I'm like, okay, are you understanding this? And, and I did something that I never do. It's like, let me send you what I've written. That's cool. It's just incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, but part of it, but, but actually what I learned there is that it's not a bad thing. Uh, what I learned in, in the research, in the academic research, is how important disclosure is in dealing with our regrets, that disclosing our regrets relieves the burden and helps us make sense of them. So my surprise evaporated once I learned the research. It's like, well, no, this makes sense why people are disclosing, because they're removing a little bit of a burden, and they are, by simply describing it uh, and talking about it, they are on the path to making sense of the regret. How do we use our regrets to improve ourselves and improve our performance and, you know, whatever it, it might be? Yeah. I mean, the one thing, and again, I don't want to sound too touchy-feely here, but but one important step is to uh, is to actually not either not neither beat yourself up over them nor like sort of pat yourself on the back for it. You you have to sort of treat yourself with some kindness when you have your when you when you have regrets. There is some interesting research on, on like self-esteem. So let's say I have a regret. I, I regret that I didn't travel more when I was young. Um, you know, I can say, I mean, that's okay, Dan, you're awesome anyway, and just boost my self-esteem. It's a, you're just incredible anyway. Like, you're probably, it's probably better off for you to be in the United States because everyone loves being around, you know, whatever. <laughs> All right, so boost my self-esteem. The other one is what we, what we more often do is we just, you idiot, what is wrong with you? You're such a stupid, you know, like our self-talk is just so horrible. And so there's a principle pioneered by Kristen Neff at University of Texas called self-compassion, very powerful research showing that if we treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt, if we treat ourselves the way that we would treat a friend, uh, if we recognize that our mistakes are part of our shared humanity, that's actually the beginning of the reckoning process. So that's one thing we can do. The second thing we can do is, is, is disclosure. Disclosure is incredibly important. Um, as, a, as we talked about before, it, it relieves the burden. It begins the sense-making process. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it, is, it is powerful because we, are, we convert some of these blobby negative feelings into concrete words, and that makes them less fearsome. And, and so we also fear that you know, when we disclose that people will, will like us less, but they actually like us more. And so disclosure is important. And then the most important thing is, is draw a lesson from it. You know, you can't just like disclose it. You say, okay, what did I learn? Like you have to stop, take a step back and say, what did I learn from this? What is the lesson I derived from this and apply, uh, apply going forward. So if you treat yourself with some, with some, with kindness rather than contempt, if you disclose it to make sense of it, and then you take a step back and draw a lesson from it, it, the research is overwhelming that it's helpful on a business level. It's unbelievable. It there's, there's research showing that it, that, that, uh, regret can help make you a better negotiator. It can help you with your problem-solving skills. Uh, it makes senior business leaders better strategists. It it uh, deepens your sense of meaning. I mean, there's some really profound benefits from properly, properly dealing with our regrets. 
that self-disclosure one, I think is really, really important from a leadership perspective too. Like yeah. when a leader self-discloses, these were my mistakes. These were my regrets. They are vulnerable, but that vulnerability draws people to them, right? As long as it's not oversharing in a, in an inappropriate way. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of leaders who feel like they need to be perfect, feel like they cannot have mistakes, but that that's not true. That that's absolutely not. It's like it's a it's a colossal mistake on fronts. First of all, um, it's a misreading of what the evidence tells us. I mean, I don't know if it's a reading of the evidence, but it's a it's a it's a it's a miscalculation uh, of what the evidence tells us. Again, there's ample research on this that 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 disclosing our vulnerabilities, our failures, our screw ups um, builds affinity much more than it makes people recoil in in horror. Uh, when you when you we disclose these things. People admire our courage and they empathize with us. And for leaders to do it is, is absolutely powerful. And not doing it, you know, here's the thing. It's like we don't do, especially in the United States, a very good job of dealing with negative emotions. We've sort of over-indexed on, on like insane positivity all the time because we've never been taught what to do with negative emotions. So part of us, you know, are taught, okay, negative, okay, there's a negative emotion coming in. I'm going to ignore it. Emotions aren't real. Never look backward, blah, 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 it's not going on. Okay, so that's a, that's a bad idea. But sometimes we actually get debilitated by these negative emotions. We wallow in them, we ruminate over them, and that's bad too. What we want to do is we want to use these negative emotions as signals. And if leaders use these neg their own regrets as signals, hmm, what's this, you know, I have a regret, I feel bad, I feel bad. But what we know is that regret makes us feel bad, but do better. So what's this, what's this telling me? There's a signal coming in, and if I listen to that signal, I'm going to be I'm going to be better off. As I was reading the book, I was thinking about different ways in which leaders can use this research and this book to help their teams and their people. And one of the the ideas I had is asking about regrets during an interview. What do you think about that idea? It's a very interesting idea. I'm wondering whether I would love to see it tried. Um, I can I can go two ways on this. One is that I can see people giving a very performative answer in the way that they, you know, what's your biggest weakness? Oh, I have two. I work too hard and I care too much, you know. Um, and then, uh, but I can also see it being a, a, a revealing um, uh, a, a revealing answer too. So I, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see it tried. Uh, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite interview questions, uh, which is, uh, "Tell me something that you've changed your mind on recently." Now that's a good one. And, you know, with questions like that, it's not necessarily the words that I look for. It's the body language. Is this person giving me a robotic answer that they think I want to hear or are they being sincere? And maybe the way to prime it is to disclose a regret yourself. I think that's smart. Say, I think know, that's the way to do it. I agree with you. Because what I was picking up on is what you wrote about the what we regret reveals our values mm. and what we want to know in interviews oftentimes is what does this individual value? Great point. Uh, the other thing that I was thinking about is a sports reference and you might appreciate this one. Herb Brooks, who was the legendary coach for the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, not the motivation, motivation speech before the Soviet game, but before the Finland game says, if you, if you guys lose this game, 
you will take it to your graves. <laughs> and, and he used very colorful language on that. But, you know, the, the players talked about that. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is, I mean, that's kind of the pre-mortem that you talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also shows you how it's important to anticipate our regrets and to do it properly. And so, you know, it, so that if you're playing for, if, did the U.S. play Finland in the finals? Is that what they, it was? Yeah, it was yeah. their last yeah. game. And yeah. they had to so win that. They had that. to win that to do that. So they had to knock out the Soviets. Do you believe in miracles? Uh, and then they... Um, and then they they played Finland to to win that thing. So so again, so you know, if you you you, you got to use that for the right things. When we anticipate our regrets, you have to use that for the right things. And you know, it can't be like, oh man, if yeah, if I don't if I buy a blue car rather than a gray car, I'm going to take that to my grave. I mean, that's, you know, it's it's really, you know, it's really that you focus on the you, when we anticipate our regrets, we focus on the on the right things. Yeah. So, so let's talk for a minute about the regret optimization principle, because yeah. I think that's really fascinating. And it's a kind of a, I, I think it's a play on uh, Jeff Bezos. It is uh, explicitly. Yeah. Okay. okay. So w w what is that and why does it matter? Well, we have a tendency to, you know, it's like, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to actually minimize all my regrets. I'm going to minimize all my regrets. And, um, and that's unhealthy actually. That is uh, one of the things we know from, piles and piles of social psychology is there's sort of two, two broad approaches to decision making. This is fairly well known. There, some people are maximizers. So I'm going to make the best decision in every round. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? I'm going to maximize. What kind of car am I going to buy? I'm going to maximize. Um, and what the research tells us is that maximizers are generally miserable. They're, they're overwhelmed. There's always something better. They, they make themselves crazy. And that the alternative satisfies is good enough um, are sometimes perfectly perfectly happy. And, and I think that what we want to do is we don't want to minimize all of our regrets. We want to optimize them. And by that, what I mean is that when we anticipate our regrets, I know, okay, go back to Herb Brooks. If you don't build a solid foundation, you will take that to your grave. If you don't act boldly, you will take that to your grave. If you do the wrong thing, you'll take that to your grave. If you don't build connections to people who care about you and you care about, you will take that to your grave. But the other step doesn't matter. So maximize on those regrets, minimize those regrets rather, and then just satisfy on everything else, man. I mean, it's like, it doesn't matter again, like whether you have a blue car, I mean, ultimately a blue car or a gray car, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and certainly when you're, in your final years on this planet, you're not going to be thinking about that. But you are going to be thinking about, man, I never told my my brother that I loved him. Uh, you are going to say, wow, I had this really close friend growing up and we just drifted apart and I wanted to reach out. And, and I have a story like that in the book. And and when I and I knew this this friend was sick, but I, I wanted to reach out and I never got around to it. And then when I decided to reach out, it turned out that she had died that morning. You know, you, that's that's going to bug you. And so the regret optimization principle is make decisions to minimize those four core regrets um, and then just satisfy on everything else. And I really think that that is a recipe for satisfaction, psychological well-being, and to your point, Don, leadership success. Yeah. I, th I think about the maximizers I know, and oftentimes they perseverate on a particular decision and they never make the decision or well, they spend exactly. so much time. And, and then, you know, by the time that they do decide, maybe the opportunity is passed and, uh, 
Uh, exactly, exactly. And so anticipating red, I, I loved I loved writing about that because some interesting research. There, there's there are certain things in there that are um, like sort of how our decision making wiring is a little bit faulty. So things like like when I was in school, everybody always said, you know, taking a multiple choice test, put down your first instinct. You, you, you it, like, do I want to change? Oh, I, I think the answer is C. But no, I come back and I think it's B. Do you change? No, don't change. Always go with your first instinct. And that's completely wrong. I mean, there's evidence showing that you actually should switch. But the reason we don't switch is that we feel more pain from switching from a right answer to a wrong answer than not switching from a wrong answer. And so that sort of heightened pain that we feel from that anticipated regret leads us to some bad decision, leads us to some bad decisions. But so we really want to we really want to op, want to optimize on the main things. And I really think that regret tells us, like, what do we want out of life as human beings? We want some stability. We want a chance to do something. We want to do the right thing. I found the moral regrets kind of heartening. There's something kind of inspiring that people in their 50s and 60s are bothered by moral breaches earlier in their life. It suggests that we want to be good. Uh, and then certainly and certainly uh, connection regrets, too. It's like, you know, like, like all these like we, we want stability and a chance to do great things and be moral. But ultimately what, what we want, I mean, again, not to be too touchy feely about this is we want love and love, not only in the romantic sense, but love that we have for, you know, other relatives besides our spouses and love that we have for our friends and even to some extent, the love that we have for our colleagues and teammates. Do you have any advice for leaders who are working to coach a member of their team through a particular regret or a particular failure? And you talked about the, you know, the, the selves, the disclosure, the compassion. Yeah, I think what's important, I think what's important is, is first of all, it's like, you know, I mean, you know, self-compassion is, is a, it's a gooey term. And you could, I think you could also call it kind of get over yourself compassion in, in the sense that we, we sometimes think we're more special than we, we really are. And I, I've used this technique myself. So if I have a regret about, um, I, I have some regrets about, God, I mean, twice in my life, I took such a stupid idea to take certain these two jobs, these two jobs that I had. Just a colossal mistake. It made me miserable. It, it was really, and and I and I just I really regret I really regret those things, and I felt bad about it for a very long time. But at a certain point, I needed to get over myself and say, "Wait, Dan, do you think you're the only person who's made a bad choice about where to go work? Like that's a pretty common experience. Like you're not that special, you know." Um, and if you had, if, if someone else came to you saying, oh, I, I, you know, I, I, I took these two jobs and they were a total waste of time. Uh, what would you say to them? You freaking idiot. What's wrong with you? You should have known, you know, you would, you would treat them with compact. And so, so part of it is like, is that self-compassion? The other thing is actually talking about it freely, as I mentioned before, but one of the most important things is like, you don't stop there. You, you say you extract a lesson from it. All right. And and so you extract a lesson and you apply it like the technique that I've I'm, I'm started using myself is sort of next time. So you look for the next time you're at that kind of juncture and you remember it. You remember it then. So let me let me be a little bit more concrete. Tina Selig at, at, at Stanford has this great idea. I did it myself of uh, called a failure resume where you you have your regular resume. The thing that sort of talks about how, like, you're the greatest thing ever. And, it you know, when you pull up your LinkedIn profile, stirring music plays in the background because you're so incredible. But um, a failure resume is a list of your screw ups and your setbacks and your mistakes and your blunders and so forth. And you literally list it 
you know, like you would in a resume, but then that's, that's only the first step. The next step is to say, what lesson did you learn from it? And what are you going to do about it? And, and for me, when I did this, I found this a, a really revealing task on the, because one of the things is like, there were some mistakes. It's like, what's a lesson? It's like, I don't know if there's a lesson. It's just sometimes like things go wrong. You know, sometimes it's it, like things just don't go right. And it's just what, it, you know, that's the way it works. But for me, what I found is that when I started looking at this list, it was like, wait a second, I'm, I've been making two mistakes over and over and over and over again. And like, I probably should stop making those two mistakes <laughs> because I'd be a lot better off. And the, the, the forcing function for uncovering some of those mistakes was the um, failure resume. In the book summary, you talk about regret teaches us two broader lessons. Could you talk about what those lessons are? And uh, yeah, and what we can yeah. Take away. So, 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 so as I try to unpack some of these core regrets, I realize that they're, they're ultimately always about like about two things, uh, opportunity and obligation. And so if you think about uh, boldness regrets, it's like, oh my gosh, I had an opportunity. I didn't pursue the opportunity and more regrets are about, I had an obligation and I blew that obligation or, and then, and then connection regrets are sometimes a mix of both. Um, and then foundation regrets are more about, oh, man, I had the opportunity for a great education, but I was too lazy and, and so forth. And and I felt those kinds of things kept swirling around there. And I realized that's actually really important as we fashion a good life, that our lives are about opportunity and obligation. And the key, the key thing here is is the and, is the conjunction there. In my mind, an op, a, a life of opportunity and no obligation is kind of a hollow life, a, a life of of obligation, but no opportunity is kind of uh, crimped, uh, shackled, uh, 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 not vivid. But I think that a, a life that fuses opportunity and obligation is is true. Like that's what we want out of life. We want a life where we are able to meet our obligations because that is ennobling, but also pursue opportunities because that is uplifting. And and to me, again, to my surprise, this emotion that we like, oh, I don't want to talk about regret. This, this emotion is basically telling us what makes life worth living. And what makes life worth living is fusing opportunity and obligation. You started the book with a story and you end the book with a story. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful thread throughout. And I, I was so excited to read that story. I want to do the same thing with this interview and I won't do it as beautifully as you did. But you started talking about why you wrote this book and you talked about your daughter's graduation. Mm. And I'm wondering, we'll bring it back to the family role. One of the most important leaderships that we play, you and I, is parenting. Mm -hmm. I think I can speak for you on that. I've, I've known you for a long time and talked very fondly about your children. And I'm wondering, how has what you've learned influenced you as a father? And I mean, what you've learned about, about regret. About regret. Um... I think it's, I, I think that it's, it's mostly for, for, for my kids. It's, I think it's like you're in your life, you are going to have to deal with negative emotions that things are not going to be positive all the time. And you're going to feel crappy at, at certain times and you need to pay attention to that and not be, and not ignore that, not say, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever, da, 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 but not wallow in it, but say, you know, negative emotions are telling you something. And if, and if my kids are like everybody else, and statistically, the odds are very, very good that they are, that the most common negative emotion that they are going to feel is regret. 
And so I want them to be prepared for that, not to ignore it, not to be debilitated by it, but to use it as a force for for learning. And and, and so I so I think that's what it is. And I also think, you know, not not surprisingly, parents parents don't like they're like bosses in a way. They don't like talking about all their screw ups and mistakes. And I, and I think that um, because we're you know, because we're kind of embarrassed and we feel like, oh, my God, my kids are going to think I'm an idiot. And with me, it's like my kids already think I'm an idiot. So I might as well disclose <laughs> I might as well disclose my regrets uh, anyway, and maybe they can learn something from my regrets. And that's a, one other thing. Forgive the long-winded answer here, Don, but one of the things that I, I, I heard from people, especially later in life, uh, people say in their 80s, is that um, you know when they have regrets and they're harder to undo, and there are inaction regrets, and they're harder to sort of you know plot an entirely new course because there's less ahead of them. That one of the things that gives them a sense of meaning is actually transmitting the lessons. To the next generation, so that's a big thing that we can do for our for for our own kids and, and for all kids. Anybody who tells you they have no regrets, what do you say to them? You're, I, I say to them, are you five years old? Okay, <laughs> I check to see that because we know that five year olds don't have regrets because their brains haven't developed. I said, have you had an MRI or a thorough neurological exam? Because we also know that people with brain certain kinds of brain damage and certain neurodegenerative diseases can't feel regret. Or are you a sociopath? So if you're none of those, then you're not telling me the truth. Uh, we all have regrets and don't, you know, and they don't, they don't make you, they don't make you less, they make you human. And if you use them properly, they can be an incredible force for good. They can point you in the direction of a life well lived. Well, congratulations again. I really, really enjoyed the book. Thanks a lot. And I, and I think it will open up conversations for people that it already has in our home. Oh, good. And uh, only half of us have, have read the book. So, um, so again, Dan, thank you for taking your time and uh, sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. Congratulations on the book. And thank you again for being a genius. Thanks a lot for having me, Don. And, and thanks, actually. I really appreciate your, your reading the book so thoroughly and asking such uh, such thoughtful questions. Uh, it was really a really super interesting interview. And, and, and the mark to me of a good interview, if I'm the interviewee, is whether I learned something. Like, I've taken notes on this interview. So, uh, <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. In our next episode, we will explore the power of purpose with Richard Leiter. Richard is the author or co-author of 11 books about purpose, including Work Reimagined, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old, and The Power of Purpose. My conversation with Richard is a must for anyone struggling to find their purpose at work or in life, and for leaders who want to better understand how to rally a team around a common purpose. That episode will be released March 15th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. If you love this podcast, please let us know by subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.